0: Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. This is episode four. The Clinical Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Clinical Athlete, a network of healthcare providers who specialize in the management of athletes. Find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. Don't forget about the Clinical Athlete Forum, where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, and share ideas and resources related to sports med, rehab, and performance. And to join the forum or be listed on the Clinical Athlete Directory, Details and applications can be found at clinicalathlete.com. This podcast in particular can be found on the website, clinicalathlete.com, YouTube, iTunes, where we appreciate nice reviews. Uh, Everybody has been seems to be super nice, and, and uh, the podcast seems to be helpful for like 10 people. Uh, so if you like it, shoot us a review on iTunes. My name is Quinn Hennick, and I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California. And I'm joined by Michael Ray. Mike, how are you? Doing well, Quinn. How are you? Man, I'm, I'm doing well. Tell the people about yourself. I'm a
1: chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I own a clinic called Shenandoah Valley Performance Clinic. Um, and then uh, co-own a CrossFit gym as well that's attached to the clinic.
0: And we're also joined by Derek Miles. Derek, what's up, man? How's it going, Quinn? It's going well. Tell the people who you are and what you do. <laughs>
2: That's an entire podcast in and of itself. Who am I? I am a physical therapist in Sunnyvale, California for Stanford Children's Health. Ooh, fancy.
0: On the name. You think you're better than us? <laughs> for other reasons than that. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, and lastly, we'll announce some upcoming clinical athlete courses and events. We have the two day clinical athlete weightlifting certification where we break down and build back up the snatch and the clean jerk for coaches and clinicians in Brooklyn, New York this weekend, September 23rd, in which this podcast will probably be out after the course, but you know, just in case. Uh, and then Sherwood, Oregon on November 4th, lacrosse, Wisconsin on november 18th that one is approved by the wisconsin physical therapy association for ceus and then the one day scientific principles of sports rehab which michael and derek uh co-teach this weekend again if this thing comes out in time this weekend you guys are going to virginia mike's mike's staying in virginia derek's gonna head over there Uh falls church on the 23rd of september richmond virginia on the 24th of september so back-to-back days and then the next week on September 30th to October 1st, we have a two day SPOSR course in Harwood Heights, Illinois, which is a Western suburb of Chicago. So you guys will be doing your same one day lecture on, uh, pain and low, you know, chronic versus acute pain and tendonopathies, muscle strains and post ops and all the great things when we talk to, uh, talk about, uh, sports rehab. And then on day two will be a lab where you guys run through progressions of various uh, loading strategies and uh, physical rehab techniques. That'll be an awesome course. That'll be the first two-day SPOSR. So we're, we're excited to see how that goes. And then we've got a couple. Uh, we've got a movement seminar in Springfield, Massachusetts on October 15th. That's a one-day lecture and lab for coaches and clinicians. And then I'm running a little workshop in uh, Southern California, which I didn't even put the date in front of me. I think it's October 21st or something like that. It's, it's on the Clinical Athlete website. All these events are on the Clinical Athlete website. And that's a workshop for, uh, squ- the squat, the squat and the deadlift. All right. So today we are going to talk about pain. And this is the only episode that we're ever going to talk about pain. This is the pain episode. No other subject is going to relate to this one. This is it. Uh, Mike, brings me to a thought here. Didn't you recently write a blog on the subject of pain?
1: Yeah, yeah, I did on um, Derek and I's uh, website, The Logic Rehab. So wrote a brief synopsis
0: on how we can approach pain treatment in the clinical world. What's the name of that? What's the name of the blog? The title. Pain science guiding the path. And I will say, it was not. It's not that brief. It's not that bad either, though. Uh, you you do. It's a, it's first of all it's a great blog. You you do a good job of of kind of running through the history, which is I think is kind of what we're going to go through today: is the history and and defining terms, and then you know bringing it to clinical uh, relevance. But I wanted to we've got a few papers to to talk about here. One of which is the title of which is "Updating the Definition of Pain" by Amanda. Uh, that's a, it's a commentary by Amanda Williams and, and Kenneth Craig, and that's in the journal. Not the Journal of Pain. It's the International Association for the Study of Pain, and uh, released in 2016. And I, I want to backtrack a little bit because Mike, in your blog, you talk about the history of just kind of the, the study of pain. Can you talk a little bit about uh, about that? How you write in your blog? Even you know in, in years like the 16th, 16th, 17th century, you know how the word pain came to be and how people first started to study it.
1: Yeah. Um so overall like a brief history lesson in it the original thought process was very um from a like a dualistic type thinking where the mind is very separate from the body um and they looked at that pain was more of a, a consequence of direct tissue damage to an area and i actually talk about um Descartes in the blog but basically stating that if say a foot got too close to an open fire They would open pores in the foot and then a single tube would run from the foot to the brain and would release spirits straight up to the brain. And then that would cause pain and it would be like a one to one ratio of the amount of tissue damage done in the foot to the intensity of pain that you felt. So it's very kind of simplistic definition of tissue damage equals pain. And it was this one to one ratio of intensity levels.
0: And how does that relate to where we are Now, or even maybe before this this first article that we're going to talk about, because the title of which is an update on the definition of pain, where were we before that? How has pain science kind of evolved from this one-to-one ratio of of body tissue damage to pain perception?
1: Yeah, so um, as we kind of like progress through from that definition, there was a model that came out called the biopsychomotor model that added a couple things to our previous thought process of how we define pain. And that was much more of um, the idea of realizing that pain's not just this um, solely internal experience where there are no outside influences that make up a person's experience of pain. And they added in communicative behavior, um, pain-based behaviors, as well as um, protective behaviors with pain. And so it started taking into account, like, there's a social experience and a cultural aspect of pain that can kind of shape, A, how you experience pain, and then, B, what are your responses to that pain that you experience? And it gets into a lot more, like, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but like how our jobs as clinicians are the social aspect of the pain experience.
0: Yeah, I think, I I think that's, uh, that's the big thing here. And then in the updating, the definition of pain by, by Williams and Craig, you know, they're taking the definition from 1994 in which it, it read an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms of such damage so like you said there's there seem to have been an evolution of uh from one to one and here you had this definition from the mid 90s where where we're putting emotion in there now an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience and so it's not just damage it's, it's an experience that we have uh but but still could be associated with tissue damage but The updated or the the definition that Williams and Craig are proposing is similar, but has a couple additions, which it reads, pain is a distressing experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage with sensory, emotional, cognitive, and social components. And going through this paper, they talk about why they added things like cognitive and social components we talk about the biopsychosocial, you know, model of pain it seems to be where we're moving with this thing. Um, but the biggest the biggest thing it it seems the biggest difference is that pain is an experience that we have that can have many factors kind of play on that experience. D- Derek, can you talk a little bit about, you know, in in your clinical practice how a patient's experience can affect how they're perceiving pain. You know, it could be somebody coming in or two people coming in with the same injury, but vastly different perceptions.
2: Well, everyone's experience is always going to be unique to them. And that's part of the reason why two patients with the exact same thing present so differently. And it is multifactorial. And we as clinicians, one of our big jobs is setting those expectations and helping guide them through the experience of what they're having. And you look at it, pain is a distressing experience. Well, if it's distressing in and of itself, part of our job is to mitigate that stress if we're going to talk about pain management. So it's an entirely different experience if you are constantly worried about where you're going to go, but you know reassurance, reassurance, reframing, and looking at the different components from the sensory, emotional, cognitive, and social side of it, it is really what lets us layer in to be the most effective. And it, the definition itself does a very good job of pointing out that it is multifactorial. We always like to distill things down to one or two, but even at four, we're, we're just kind of scratching the surface because layered within each one of these different components as well.
0: Does that affect your subjective interview? Is that where you're gaining this information? Is you know the the subjective interview getting an idea of the patient's psyche, their perception of the not just their you know, pain perception, but also their belief about the injury, their expectation for recovery, if they have any fear? Is that are you gaining that information in the subjective interview?
2: You know, I think interview may even be not the most or the best word to use for it. It may be that subjective dialogue because interview, it implies I'm trying to garner a lot of information out of it, but if I want to be part of the process, then I want to have a dialogue with the patient where I'm going to gain that information, because then I'm going to get a little bit better feel out of the emotional and social components out of it. You know, There's the one study that talks about how long it takes a physician to interject when a patient is talking. and shows it's a very short span of time, but if you can prolong that and let the patient actually talk and and explain what's going on, around that two-minute mark is where you really start getting the crux of the story, and I think with an interview, and even how we're taught as clinicians, interview is correct because it's always what question are we going to ask next, what question we're we going to ask next, where does it take it to take us down our algorithm? But sometimes we get so focused on getting to the end of our algorithm that we miss the story being presented in front of us that would be present if we approached it as a dialogue. Right, the whole learn how to listen thing. Except when you
0: get a patient who doesn't stop talking for like half an hour until you interject, and then maybe. Maybe you're steering the ship a little bit. Mike, does this, does that definition affect your, so what, first of all, I guess I'll ask, what do you like about the updated definition versus the old one from, from the mid nineties? It's, it's multifactorial, like Derek was talking about. So just kind of broadened our understanding
1: of it, gave us a little more perspective on what exactly are we treating? um, And I think it just allows us to kind of approach it a little bit differently than previously I still like the inclusion of actual or potential tissue damage, which is what we'll definitely talk about um, down the road when we're trying to differentiate between acute versus chronic pain and how to deal with those issues. But it just kind of takes into account the entire person, their sensory experiences of the world around them and how those can be molded and shaped over time, their emotional response to pain, which could be cultural and socially learned, cognitively, which is where they're experiencing the pain, and it doesn't again necessarily mean that they're having any damage to an area but then also the social underpinnings as well that go with pain it's a it's a developed language and there's actually been studies that look at at what point in a child's developmental uh age do they actually start developing the word pain which if i call it correctly is like age 3 to 4 but before that they have words like hurt and ow and things that would make sense if they're actually experiencing tissue damage but pain is much more complex than that and it, it tends to take time to develop
0: yeah it it I have, so I like the Derek, what you said with the dialogue thing, and I try to get, part of my intake form is trying to understand the patient's reference point or frame of the situation, no matter what the injury is. I'm, you know, I'm asking the questions because I, I need the information of when it started, what I, I'm seeing all, mostly athletes, what was your training like leading up to the, when the issue, when you started to perceive the pain, but also questions like what are what are your thoughts as to what's going on? If you've had other treatment in the past, uh, did it help with the situation? You know, I don't want to say, did it help with the pain? I don't say that. I said, uh, did it help? You know, and I let them tell me what help means. And then I say, if yes or no, ex- please explain why. So if it didn't help and maybe help was decreasing their pain or, or maybe it was increasing their function, if they feel like it didn't help, well, why do they feel that way? Because you know it doesn't I have no idea what they got in the past and it gives me an idea of of where their psyche is you know how they what are their expectations towards therapy coming to see me are they already negative about the experience of of physical rehab coming to see me because of of past experiences or you know what they've read on the internet or or their you know family members having uh, bad experiences or are their experiences really really good and they're very, you know, positive and upbeat and they think this thing is go, is, is going to go away. You know, and they kind of explain those things. So I, I think just getting as much information about their beliefs and expectations of, of their own situation and then how they feel. I, I or, or the clinician can help with that before they even come in the doors is, is really, really helpful because it kind of gives me a one up on, you know, the kind of conversations that we're going to have. Uh, and g- going on, if if there's anything more that you guys want to say about this, this definition, but I kind of want to go into not necessarily the anatomy of pain, but differentiating mm-hmm. between nociception and pain perception, because mm-hmm. they're not exactly the same thing. And I think this is where we've, we've come from the tissue one plus one tissue damage equals pain, where now it's, oh, we have nociceptors our brain is is interpreting nociception one possible output is the perception of pain mike can you talk a little bit of, more about that because there there's some papers here explaining and you talked about it in your blog a top-down versus a bottom-up uh influence on pain yeah so
1: with um top-down versus bottom-up processing is kind of how we would look at it is there's been a couple of papers and not a couple of this has kind of been a reoccurring theme for quite some time in the pain science field. But two articles um, that we have is the Hawk 2015 paper and then the commentary on that by Nicolardi from 2016. Um, both are excellent papers. I will say they're pretty complex to jump into um, and they can be a bit daunting if you're not familiar with like EEG readings and uh, like gamma waves and stuff like that. But that would be a good paper to look at, like where they're testing out top-down versus bottom-up processing for um, pain uh, interpretations for pain. And then um, there's another good article that I think explains a little bit easier for people that might be able to understand a little bit better by LeGrain, which is Cognitive Aspects of Nociception and Pain, Bridging Neurophysiology with Cognitive Psychology. And they tend to go through the uh, top-down versus bottom-up definitions and then give a good review of or both of those differing factors with pain interpretation. But in essence, the way we kind of look at this is um, if you had an acute pain-based issue that was um, immediate trauma to to an area, that's going to be more of a bottom-up kind of uh, approach. And so you could have nociceptors, which pick up various types of stimuli like thermal and chemical, and then it's going to send that information up to the brain and then that information can be interpreted as uh, painful and, and how it gets determined as pain is dependent on a lot of things like what is the the threat value of what's happening to you or is it a novel situation that you've never experienced before? Like all of these can um, cause pain interpretation to occur from nociception. So we say that an acute issue is typically stimulus driven, it's intensity dependent, um, and you usually have an unintentional or reflexive action to say the tissue damage. So, a good example of this would be like you go to touch a pan on the stove and you didn't realize how hot it was and you burn your hand. You instantly kind of like let go of that pan. On the flip side of that, we have kind of uh, chronic pain that we look at. And usually with this, this is much more of a top-down approach to talking about pain science. And that basically says that pain um, interpretation for whatever reason is getting interpreted into the brain. And it's it's based on a lot of factors like your perception of the issue. Um, It has much more to do with about things like uh, fear avoidance and catastrophizing and your previous experiences with various tasks. So we say it can be task specific. And then those tasks based on if they previously caused you issues, they could reproduce um, your interpretation as being pain. So we say this is much more perceptually based versus stimulus based like uh, bottom up. Either one can can have the ability to uh, have pain interpretation. But you're much more likely to have a warranted pain interpretation for an acute pain based issue versus a chronic where it's very unlikely there's tissue damage going on to an area, and for whatever reason the brain's interpreting something as painful, hopefully
0: I've somewhat adequately explained that yeah no it's i, I that makes perfect sense but so we're we're all kind of in agreement that pain, regardless of if it's acute chronic pain is a is an ex- a subjective experience. It's, it's pain is a yeah. perceptual output. So, but what you're saying is, with the bottom up, in a more acute situation, our pain is more consistent with an injury. So, with yes. with actual tissue injury, tissue damage, whatever, nociception is in that case is more likely to be one of the main drivers to the output of pain. Potentially,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's always going to be exceptions to the rules, right? But I would say if we were to to have the kind of the broad strokes coverage of this, we wanted to dichotomize out acute pain versus chronic. Acute has a much greater likelihood to be relatable to direct tissue damage, and it would be kind of towards that older definition we talked about at the beginning with the card. Like you had direct tissue damage, you felt pain, and the the bigger issue here is pain in this sense is protective. It's a protective measure to ensure that you maintain your life or limb and functionality of that area that's getting damaged. But there's always going to be exceptions to that rule. I mean, there's going to be anecdotal cases where we hear about soldiers in battle that are having pretty traumatic injuries and they keep going through battle without stopping until they get to a certain point. So it becomes much more of, uh, we'll definitely have to jump into this at some point, but attention is where we kind of can boil this down to. And if there's a goal that's more important enough to you to override your pain sensation or your pain
0: experience, then you absolutely could override it. Derek, is that consistent also with your understanding and, and experience with uh, acute situations being a little bit more consistent in their pain pattern versus chronic? Uh,
2: I still think there's some variability to it and, you know, especially depending on how we're really going to get into the definition of acute itself. But I think you've certainly seen the movement over the past 10, 15 years to where we started seeing a lot more studies looking at base rates and looking at what we consider what we'd like to consider problematic issues in the asymptomatic population and starting to see that things that we used to see as abnormal are now normal and some of it gets into kind of the history on the other side of it we've seen the evolution of pain but we've also seen the evolution of the structuralist approach um, with you know going from williams flexion for back pain williams flexion being Facette and then McKenzie related to extension, just we always like to find something that we want to put our narrative on. And, you know, there's a lot of papers that really display that we favor an organic diagnosis because trying to discuss pain in the subjective automatically gets into some gray area out of this. And with all of that, it, it also is a knock against a lot of what we see in society and social media now setting the expectation on these nebulous concepts of what is causing your pain, whether it be an adhesion or, you know, your big toe doesn't extend enough. It, it's it's all this. When you set the bar, we all see the pharmaceutical commercials like, are you tired? Mm-hmm. Do you sometimes feel anxious? Well, you now have cancer and you need whatever. But we kind of do the same. or if we don't kind of, we do the same thing. When we set patient expectations to say, well, do you have low back pain? Then it's probably, you know, your right leg isn't as strong as your left leg. And that's not the case. There is no corollary out of that. And driving that kind of narrative all of a sudden has people wanting to go like isokinetic test their leg when they don't really need to along the way. And it's bullshit and it's shitty practice if we really get down to it. And we need to be able to think through the situation in a logical manner and be able to discuss the experience with our patients and say, you know, this could contribute a little bit, but it's likely not the driving factor behind everything.
0: Right. I think it's still, well, and you see the pendulum swing too. You know, the, the structuralist approach, uh, you know, your disc is equal to your pain, your torn meniscus in your knee is why you have knee pain, but then you see it swing the other way as well. Where you know st- structure doesn't matter, there you know doesn't matter at all. But we can kind of like you mentioned our base rates for things like uh, lumbar disc herniations, maybe FAI, tendinopathies, these things. Where maybe there's maybe there's some evidence to say that those quote unquote pathologies may predispose the area to be sensitized in certain populations, or or maybe your your workload. To that to that area is maybe decrease you can't with you know withstand the amount of volume and force through that area repeatedly without you know taking some type of break or you get sensitized or something like that. So it's hard to find those you know it's hard to find a middle ground I guess.
2: Well, um, here's the thing you know everyone and I think they're correct in doing so. knocks the Cartesian model for saying it's all in your head, but is that not the same as saying it's all in your spine? I mean, you are your head, you are your facet joint, it's still you. It's just where do you want to place the emphasis? And if we want to treat the person or treat the patient as a person, we need to realize they're not their facet joint, they're not their brain, they are whoever they are, and we need to help them get back to the best version of that we can. Mike, you got anything
1: to add on that? I think all those are great points. I mean, um, the the biggest issue I think we run into as clinicians is we try to attach titles like pain drivers to things. And we're like, oh, this is why you're experiencing pain. And I, I think the more research that comes out on, like what Derek was saying, with base rate occurrences and asymptomatic populations, like... It's becoming very, very difficult to be like, this is why you have pain. And I find that it's a pretty slippery slope to start to try traveling down that road because that's where we lead ourselves into false narratives. Like, oh, it's because you have a myofascial trigger point or we think you have adhesions or we think you have whatever. You know, um, I think that makes it where there's a lot of false narratives that lead patients down bad paths. And then years go by down the road where they're still buying into those false narratives. So we've really created a long term damage to them.
0: So the big thing. I guess is mitigating, adding it to the, the negative expectations and belief on the psychosocial aspect of things. You know, we can't control the experiences that they already have coming into the room, but we can try to reshape those narratives and, and maybe bring their pain back to the whole, you know, the pain is a, is a evolutionary trait. It's a protection mechanism. It's a threat appraisal. You know, it's, it's there for a reason. Generally, you know, if I take a hammer and bust you in the kneecap, generally, it's going to hurt, but it's probably going to hurt, uh, especially it'll hurt if you see me do it, and you're a little scared to begin with. But like, I had a kid, <laughs> this is a really weird uh, example. I haven't done this in the clinic. But I had a kid who, who I was treating for a broken leg, compound fracture of his, of his tibia. And he told me that he didn't feel a thing until people around him started freaking out because his leg looked so grotesque. And then he looked down at his leg and then it was the worst pain he had ever felt in his life. And so that's, you know, again, one of those situations where maybe the shock overrides, uh, the, the, even the evolutionary trait of, of threat pr- appraisal, you know, so it's, it's still, even in that acute instance, the acute of an acute scenario, it's still modulated by our experience. Um, yeah. that's just interesting.
1: Oh, well, I think it's attentional awareness as well, right? Like he hadn't drawn somatic awareness to the area until he like physically looked down at it. And, then, and that's very much what we see in pain research right now is it boils down to attentional focus.
2: I mean, you think about like the Spartan races and all those you know races that people do these days where a part of the course is getting shocked. It's, I don't think I've heard one case where any of those people develop chronic pain afterwards. And you're going and getting hit with however many volts, but your attention is, Hey, this is fun. I'm going to finish the race. So the entire perspective on it is different. Like, you know, I think you can make the argument if you go out and train really hard, you're going to experience some type of discomfort out of it, but it's not a distressing experience because you're like, oh, this is fun. I finished my wad today. Right. It's kind of like,
1: and, and the first thing that went through my mind when Quinn was using the example of hitting your knee with the hammer, I was like, well, it really depends on what you're into. And I mean that to say, like, <laughs> if, if if that's something you're into, if, if you have the belief system in place that's acceptable amounts of, quote unquote,
0: you, you know, damage to the area of pain, then it's unlikely that you're going to have a negative experience with it. Well, and it's not pain unless it's negative, right? Based on the definition. Exactly. Exactly. Do you guys... Uh, let's let's go into the more of the acute versus chronic deal here. What's where's the cutoff point? You know, when does something become chronic? Cause we, it all starts as acute, right? Would you, would you say that everybody who walks in the door, their situation it <laughs> began at some point and you can call that instance or that inflection point as their acute stage.
1: Yes. To a point. Um, I think there's some research out there looking at chronic pain occurrences and youth. And that kind of I think could muddy that water a little bit, but overall I would argue yes that acute pain becomes chronic pain, and our difficulty the, that they're having currently in the research world is figuring out well what causes that transition from acute to chronic, and we're definitely like learning more things as we go on. But the biggest way the research currently dichotomizes it out is typically on two parameters. Um, one would be chronicity of pain, um, and even the International Association for the Study of Pain and um, you can go to their website They talk about this. They say that it, it basically overall looks at pain that's lasted greater than three months up to possibly six months, depending on what source you're going to. But usually we say after 12 weeks that if it's and still continue on, then it's called chronic pain at that point. And then the other one would be a, an identifiable uh, mechanism of injury that's directly correlated to the injury. Uh, example, you know, an athlete could have... Um, you know, what we viewed as a perfectly functional knee before sport, they went out, played a soccer game, they had an acute contact injury and they tore their ACL. And that is a direct MOI, right? Because the thought process is they didn't
0: have a torn ACL before going onto the field. Is it still chronic if they keep exacerbating their once acute issue? Or do you keep calling it acute? Like if they don't give it 12 weeks and lay off of it appropriately or or, you know workload, does it start to get like, they they've kept the acute because what if they keep the inflammation up? What if it's actually swollen and then they keep pounding and it reswells swells up and you know at that twelve week mark, or is it still chronic just because it's been going on for that long? Yeah, I think that's a
1: gray area for um, the field currently, but it would be called chronic if it if it lasted past that time frame and. It would become much more at that point specific to the injury that we're discussing. So what are we dealing with? Uh, What's the current diagnosis? Um, I think the bigger issue when it comes to stuff like that is if we're trying to diagnose something with chronic recurrent pain, because we know the chronicity of pain as it lasts longer and longer, it tends to follow a regression to a mean. So you piss it off it spikes up, it goes back down on its own, you piss it off, it spikes up. So it's still following a standard regression to the mean with uh, with pain.
2: So here would be my uh, case scenario that I'd be interested to hear the counter-argument on. If, if you have the athlete who has just your general back ache and it goes on for a few weeks and then finally they have a moment where they have an exacerbation and it's stopping them from lifting, you call that acute or chronic. How when long? That inflection, let's say two
1: months. It depends on if they've experienced it previously. I mean, I think if it were a completely new injury, I would have a greater likelihood to be like, this is an acute issue. But if it's something where they're telling me in the narrative while I'm speaking with them that I've experienced the same issue multiple times throughout my life. And usually like we've all had this patients, especially when it's slow back pain. It's like, I've been dealing with this for 10 years. I throw my back out once or twice a year. It goes away, It does it again. So it, if it were just like, I've never experienced this before and it happened eight weeks ago. I would be much more likely to be like, oh, this is probably, you know, a strain or something like that.
2: But, so you know, be I, I think this is a good point in that it's not a dichotomy. There is a spectrum on it and, and sure. it's much dirtier than that stuff we were taught in high school where it's like, or in high school, in our practice or in our clinical training where it's like acute, subacute, chronic, it's like, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of layers to this, and you know, I think yeah. um, I know. I definitely had the test where they ask the question, "What stage is this patient in?" and you're expected to multiple choice it. Whereas you're probably better off like short answering it and doing the good old "We need more information." Yeah, and I think
1: like, the the bigger picture here is that pain's just fucking complicated, and we don't have it all figured out by any means. But we're, we're learning some things that if we're trying to decide is this an acute pain-based issue or chronic? There's some things we should pay attention to, like fear avoidance of movement with kinesiophobia, catastrophizing, stuff like that. And I think Quinn made a great point when he was like, I asked them what their beliefs are about their pain, because there's a lot of misinformation out there that kind of tease a patient up, in my opinion, to help them progress towards chronic pain issues. So we want to assess their beliefs in order to re-educate.
0: Well, especially with back pain. the, The example that you gave, Derek, I mean, you already kind of you said it. It's multifactorial, but to Mike's point, if that's something that's happened in the past, it, it, what is the usual cycle? Because if it's, you know, if it usually doesn't go away, or if he has an exacerbation and it hasn't, you know, those last for another month, uh, then, then now we're past that, you know, acute phase. And so it's like, what, what are the histories of those exacerbations? But also, you know, did he go on to Dr. Google? and read about it you know that that could affect things um and it's hard th- to also equate it to tissue damage with with things like <coughs> back pain because that's one of the that's one of the cutoffs is like acute we we, t- we tend to see more tissue damage we get into that 12 week range then we would assume that tissue any tissue damage that was present would have healed by then uh but with with the lower back it's so hard to tell you know if they come in with an MRI with a you know a herniated disc it could have been there for God knows long I'm not sh- I'm not sure they can yeah. look at an image and see the you know the chronicity no. of a of an injury like that where it's you come in with an ankle sprain and based on the mechanism of injury when it happened and you know just the looks of it from the other side if it's blown up like a grapefruit still you know it's way easier but back pain is just so complex uh, and if, if you're not getting any symptoms you know peripherally then um, it's like does it and, even and, matter and at that point and I think like it's much easier, like you were saying, looking
1: at the ankle sprains, if I look at something visually and I can see edema, obvious signs of bruising, abnormalities to the area that are very obvious and we're dealing with an acute injury. But the problem is a lot of people present with pain experiences and there's no observable signs of anything. And then we already know the issue of being like, well, let's get an image on this. If there are really no red flags that are present for us to be worried about, then we shouldn't jump down that imaging rabbit hole Otherwise, we're going to be running into issues with, you know, trying to classify a chronic pain patient in a biomedical model, which we can definitely get into that either now or later. But there's a lot of
0: issues with jumping down that rabbit hole. Well, Derek, answer your own hypothetical situation. And and what do you typically do or do you even worry about it? I mean, you know, in, in a situation like that with no red flags.
2: Well, so that's one of the big things that you always have to ask yourself as a clinician is how is this going to affect my treatment? And I, I don't think at any point I've ever like had a real cognitive moment where I'm like, this is acute or this is chronic. I'm like, this is Jim or Bob, whoever it is, and this is what I need to do to fix it. So if it doesn't really affect my methodology and how I how it's, or even more so. We get so driven on the diagnosis that we often forego the prognosis. And it, acute or chronic in this instance isn't really going to affect my prognosis for it. I, I know we have some ways with which to mitigate this. And, you know, if there is some more, and this doesn't really do the timeline, this has to go back to your belief side of it. If there are some beliefs that need addressed, that it's always x y or z that causes this well then we need to talk about x y and z or and it's not so much that it's acute or chronic it's what do we need to do about it yeah.
0: but, but wouldn't that affect prognosis to an extent if it's an acute if it's something that's the first time they felt it it happened let's say back pain i felt it on one rep at a 95 percent uh, pull and it's the first time i've ever had back pain in my life it happened last week versus the other side where I feel I have these random low back pain exacerbations and I've had them for the past 10 years. But, you know, with, with the acute situation, you could say, listen, you could, you have the choice to, to do nothing and this thing is going to go away on its own and you'll probably just be just fine. But if you, if you, you know, is it realistic to say that to the person who's had exacerbations for the past 10 years? Oh, this will be the last one. Just leave it alone. Cause that's what they've been.
2: That's, that's, but that's different. Well, Because you said, the way you said it right there is it's going to go away on its own. And by the way you did it, it does go away. And a lot of times, I'll say to patients, I could put glitter on this and it's going to feel better, or this is going to get better on its own. A lot of my job is to reduce the risk of a future exacerbation. Well, yeah.
1: Go ahead, Mike. I I think this is where... We need to assess it, honestly, like if we're wanting to decide whether it's acute versus chronic, because there's some things that are very concerning with a chronic pain patient, like learned helplessness, which is we could be like even with a chronic pain patient. Yes, we know regression to the mean exists with both cases. This is probably going to heal. It's probably going to go away. You could say the same thing to a chronic pain patient. The issue is they're going to keep experiencing it because there's certain things going on that need to be addressed with their belief systems, like pain is external to me and I have no control over it. Therefore, I am a victim of my own pain. Those are learned helplessness things that we need to assess in order to alter our narratives accordingly to help the person. So I very much agree, like the acute pain-based issue is going to physiologically heal and should clear up on its own, whereas the chronic pain issue is going to keep most likely reoccurring because nothing's being addressed
0: that needs to be. Well, and that's why I may have different conversation. You know, I, with, the, with the chronic case, I may say, you know, listen, the reality here is that you may have other exacerbations. The, the difference between how we're going to move forward is, is the way that you're going to attack the situation. And then the the way that you are going to your narrative, you know, a lot right. of times they're, they think that there's something wrong with them. You know, they're broken. They're scared. Uh, they go back to the doc every time he gives them a shot and tells them not to do anything for a month. And I say, that's going to be the difference. And the right. hope, you know, I, you know, cause if they're pain, if their goal is pain, it's very difficult. So I say, you know, with these exacerbations, you know, it would be, it would be great if it happened with less frequency. The time it, that it happens, the, the duration that it lasts is shorter. The, the intensity of the flare up is less. Like all these things are within, you know, the scope of our goals. Absolutely. But the, the biggest thing is that, um, y- you are going to not, you're, you're going to keep moving and, and keep training and you're not going to lose, you know, you're not going to lose your function in the midst of a flare up. But I'm not going to, yeah. it's, it's just a different conversation than if it's the, the very first time, you know, I, I sent people. Yeah right? Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like if it's an acute issue,
1: like what Derek was with his example, um, if it didn't have a previous history of it, i it most likely would classify it as that and if we have a direct identifiable, identifiable MOI. Um, but yeah, an acute issue, my conversation is, hey, this is going to get better. Let's not stress about this. Let's see what we can work on while this area is healing and getting better. With Whereas with a chronic pain patient, it's much more of a talk about let's start accepting pain and not try to deny it and then accept that it's in our control to deal with it so it's just two very different conversations in my opinion that i would have with the person
0: derek
2: what are you thinking i I don't i don't know to be honest i i i feel like even with the acute if you look at a lot of it you still need to address that because it's one thing now in your people that are low anxiety and you know you're run of the mill a lot of them aren't even going to seek your care in the first place and and you think about it like a lot of us whenever we're in the gym and one of our friends gets hurt you know we're just like yeah you'll be fine whatever and you know you just kind of walk it off but if that person came into your clinic you're probably going to be a little bit more thorough if they were some person that you never met before and um I still feel that those beliefs need assessed in the acute state just because acute becomes chronic. So I want to make sure that I've at least discussed that and tried to hit it off at the past to decrease the likelihood of it going there. No, Yeah, I do. yeah. not
0: to say that we ignore the people that, that come in the door that are acute, but more so I'm going to have a the conversation can be more You know, we can expect certain things with an acute situation. You know, in this time, you should be feeling pretty good. You know, if the, if, if if your baseline, if your baseline pain or your pain at rest, you no longer have pain at rest, you know, and you, you can move unloaded. We can, we can start loading, you know, and, and we can just progress that way. My point was more with the, the patient with chronic pain. I'm going to be having a conversation, like Mike said, more so learn how to accept pain. Rather than having the, oh, you know, this is, yeah, you're going to be fine at this point, boom, 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 because it's just not, we're, we're well past that. I think the bigger difference, too, we've kind of overlooked as
1: far as if it's truly an acute issue, there's a high likelihood that they physically can't do something, even if we wanted them to. Whereas if it's a chronic pain patient, it's the belief that they can't do something, not that there's any actual tissue issue that's preventing them from doing something. To a point. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be task-specific with a chronic pain-based patient. There's, if we go back to the low back pain example, every time I pick something up off the ground, I experience low back pain. It's, they're setting their own expectation that if they do a particular task, it's going to be the outcome of pain. So they're automatically having a fear avoidance to it. Um, and then with that, if they're catastrophizing about the pain as well, it's going to perpetuate their somatic awareness to it and their attention to it. Because that's what it comes down to. With the acute, the attention is much more like, yeah, you got pain because you fucked yourself up, that's going to get better. And you're going to notice it less and less as time goes on. Whereas with the chronic pain patient, it's this constant attentional focus to it and they ruminate over it and they have hypervigilance to it. And those are things that we have to address with our narrative. And I'm not saying you wouldn't do that with the acute. I'm just saying you're much more likely to need to do it repeatedly with your chronic. Obviously, it's individualistic.
0: And so it's back to what Derek said as far as it not Derek, you said it it doesn't affect the prognosis. Do you mean it doesn't affect the prognosis as as in the end game or it doesn't affect well, the lane
2: game. I mean, if it is a chronic, chances are our prognosis is gonna be a little bit more extrapolated out of it. But in the same token, if we're seeing the acute through and what's going on, then we still may be you know, a few weeks out or however long it takes us. But with the chronic pain, I think where we can get into this a little bit deeper it is it starts becoming part of the person's identity and starts being reinforced with some behaviors. And everything we know about changing behaviors, it, it, there is time with that. And, and I think a lot of times we like to look at pain as we should be able to fix it really fast. Or you, know, you look at all these studies where we can have these short term effects that everybody touts. But even with acute or chronic, most of the time where we really should focus is on our long term outcomes and our long term changes. So when I say prognosis, it it certainly would be a little bit lower of a slope on the chronic side of it, but where our focus is ultimately is on the end game and and not right now anyway, that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's the point seems to be
0: that education, education and reshaping beliefs and narratives, if, if need be, is going to be a part of the game, acute versus chronic maybe more of a drawn out thing with, with the chronic issue and the the narrative, maybe first don't be afraid of your pain. Whereas maybe with the acute phase, the pain is a, is a more consistent protection mechanism. Like, yeah, you sprained your ankle and it's blown up with grapefruit and it hurts when you jump up and down on it. We're going to respect that a little bit because that's there for a reason, you know, versus somebody right. now take that same patient and you know they moved away from you and saw somebody else who mind fucked them or something I don't know sprained his ankle a bunch of times and now he's got chronic ankle instability you know fast forward 5 years later the tissues are fully healed but that ankle is just achy and he's he's scared to cut and jump and I, you know we may say and this is a conversation maybe later on with a paper we're going to talk about but the discomfort that you feel when you jump up and down Different type of pain that you felt when things were acute, but that, but now we may actually have to work into that a little bit and, and be okay with that scenario, you know, push it, push through that perception a little bit rather than the acute phase when we use it to help us, you know, back off. I think one of the, the
1: biggest educational points with the chronic pain issue is that there is very, uh, there's a low probability and low likelihood this has anything to do with tissue damage. And once you can remove that fear that the person has this belief in place that they're hurting themselves, uh, and that's usually what you see is like they don't want to do something because they think they're going to hurt themselves and the pain is signaling hurt. And now we have enough pain science research to say, no, pain does not equal hurt, especially when we're looking at chronic pain-based issues. So it's just a, a new understanding of how to view pain. And it's not so simple as tissue damage, therefore you get pain. Looking at me weird. Does that make sense?
2: Which I think would be a perfect segue from the rehabilitation side into the next paper, where we talk about the systematic review of should exercises be painful in the management of chronic musculoskeletal pain by uh, Smith et al. And uh, Mike, since you're the uh, the pain guy on this one, we call him the pain guy mostly because he's a pain in our ass. But uh, I'm all right with that. And it's chronic. It is chronic. So Mike, you want to go and take us into this article?
0: yeah, give me just one second while I pull this up, Derek. That was a really good um, so th- intro, man. You're hired.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think you should take Quinn's job from him. We're gonna leave that part in too. But um, so this was actually sent in to by uh, our one listener on the podcast and asked if we would take a look at this and then talk about it. Um, did you already say the title, Derek? Yes. I, t- I tune you out, so it's difficult what I miss. Um so they are kind of looking at like should we be exercising our chronic pain patients um, into pain with therapeutic exercise and rehab? And this kind of gets at what I was saying is that this belief system's in place that pain equals hurt and that you shouldn't do something if it hurts. But with chronic pain, we know it has a low likelihood of actually being related to tissue damage. So you can reassure them this is going to be okay. They're going to have some discomfort with this, you know, but that's all right. I think where we get into a gray area uh, is very much like, how much pain is enough, and I don't think um this paper really figures that out, and I don't know that we're ever going to figure that out because it's a subjective
0: experience well, maybe it's depends on the on the you know tissue or, or injury at hand as well we we've talked about in the last episode with tenonopathy it's it's you know you pick a point i don't know if of a five out of 10 or whatever it is, but it seems like in, it just kind of depends on, on the situation. In this, in terms of this paper, it's not that exercising into pain was necessarily better in the long term. In fact, it, there was no difference, but maybe, right. but, and so is the conclusion more so. It's, it's not, not necessarily a bad thing to feel discomfort during exercise. Yeah. Well. It was more of there was a short term benefit, um, a small
1: statistical benefit that translated over um, for them to exercise into pain. And what that tells me is that most likely perpetuated their ability to accept the pain. And that's why I didn't translate to any long term outcomes is short term. It was just kind of reeducating them on, hey, this is OK. And a lot of people, especially like when they're going through rehab and um, I know how all of us rehab with our with our athletes and patients is it's going to be mostly like a training but they may not have ever actually like worked a muscle so to speak and they're thinking that that's equated to pain and they shouldn't be doing something because it's causing them injury so it's just kind of resetting that belief system it's always going to come back to that as setting expectations altering beliefs about how they feel and think about pain
2: yeah but you can't look at this paper and say that why it worked it is just a systematic review saying that it doesn't it need not be a barrier. So you know, right. it, this is one of those we can't be guilty of trying to frame a narrative we want to hear either. It's it just says that you know therapeutic exercise of the pain doesn't need to be a barrier, and I, I think that in and of itself, this paper is as much for about the clinician as the patient. Because a lot of times the dogma is you don't want to take your patients into pain. And and you look at the whole charge of do no harm, and we automatically have associated pain with harm for a long time. And we're starting to kind of move away from that some. And I think papers like this start giving a little bit more reprieve to the clinician as much as anyone, uh, as much as the patient for where we're going to go out of it. And then you start looking at some of the systematic reviews like we've had for um, NeoA and increasing function and decreasing pain and seeing that we need specific strength gains out of it in order to see these effects. And then we realize we're going to have to work into some discomfort. We're going to have to work into pain, but it's on us to, once again, not make it a distressing experience and make it part of the experience to get it where we need to go with our patients. Yeah. And I think
1: like, and I know Derek's heard me say this before, as we've been presenting sponsor to people a couple of times is like the biggest issue I have with chronic pain is to to your credit, Derek, we have no idea why it's effective with exercise. Uh, there's a couple of thought processes out there, but really with chronic pain, we could do damn near anything and it's going to mitigate pain and it's going to be analgesic. So I'm not even a proponent of being like, oh, we need to exercise this person or we need to A lot of people would say you need to dry needle them or you need to tape them or whatever other bullshit that's popular currently on social media. When it comes down to it, it really has nothing to do with the tissue, which we've been saying the whole time. It's much more to be about the person's belief about pain in that
2: tissue. But to circle back once again to go anti-Cartesian for a second, it's not the tissue, it's still the person. Right, And it's not totally. your spine, it's not your head, it's it's the person out of it. And I think that's something we need to get past as rehabilitation specialists is to get off this boat of saying it is this minutia. It is, you know, your one part of your brain is firing on an fMRI, even though the highest correlation we have is your subjective experience. It's your left phenomenon is rotated. Horseshit, it's not rotated. But it's still your left phenomenon. It is you. It's predicated on that and driving this narrative of trying to segmentalize or compartmentalize everybody out. How can you ever get a whole person whole again if you're constantly focused on one small component of it?
1: Yeah. And I mean, uh, Cohen did a paper in 2011 on this called the stigmatization of your patient. I mean, it's exactly that is if you try to single it and distill it down to a single thing, you are taking away the person's identity. You're stigmatizing them. You're giving them a scarlet letter. And now you're no longer hearing the whole person. You can't empathize with them because you would be trying to empathize with some dumbass diagnosis that doesn't correlate to anything. So I, we're very much on the same low page. Likelihood
2: of correlating
1: to
0: anything. There you go. Low likelihood. Thanks. Still with us, Quinn? I am. There's a, there's, a, <laughs> there's just a lot here. Uh, you know, you talk about the structural things like you're, you have weakness here and that's why you have pain your your hips are rotated that's why you have pain that just doesn't that doesn't hold up on at the lowest level as as what we understand with pain there's no we don't have pain receptors your brain your consciousness is your is your pain receptor your experience is your is your pain receptor so what you had said Derek with those with the rotated anomaly that just that's a gross misunderstanding of of the pain uh you know, process of the, of the perceptual process. It just doesn't make any sense. There's as many people with, if you, if you took, if you measured them with some, you know, non-reliable orthopedic testing that seem like they're quote unquote even, and they can have the same exact pain perception or worse. It goes back to your base rates with, with pathology. So that doesn't even, that doesn't even matter to me. It's just so off the wall. It's just, we have to have a conversation way before you're talking about hips being rotated, we have to have the conversation about just ground level understanding of, of pain science. Uh, but to this chronic, to exercising in, into pain, especially with, with chronic pain, I want to dive into that a little bit because with athletes, you know, we're working mostly with athletes. I have a hard time when I get a family member of an athlete, I have seen, like you know it happens every couple months I always get a, a person who's a non athlete and I define athletes based on their goals. if their goal is something athletic, whether or not they are any good at it or because most most people aren't most people are mediocre athletes right let's be honest most of the athletes that walk in your door aren't going anywhere, but their goals are at, are athletic in nature and so I consider them athletes, but sometimes I'll get a family member. Who will walk in in a shirt and tie and slacks, and you know, put his briefcase down? And he's the dad of the athlete that I'm seeing. And I have, you know, it's a much different situation because for me, quote unquote, treating somebody with chronic pain just means increasing their fitness level to the task, and then we're having conversations about pain. But this person doesn't want to increase, and and fitness has nothing to do with their pain. It's like we might as well not be weak and out of shape while we're trying to have these conversations over time about reshaping narratives. But with somebody who's not an athlete, I have more difficulty because I can't fall back on, Oh, let's just go get strong and and in shape. Maybe I can, but what, like they're not going to do it if they're, if that's not their goal. And so it, it does a lot of times just become a conversation because are we exercising people with chronic pain? We're not, I hope, you know, we're not spinning the narrative that this exercise you're in less pain because of the exercise. I also hope not. How are we educated? You know, in that moment when they do an exercise, oh, they say that feels better. You know, what do you guys say? How do you explain that?
1: It's so, you know, if it's talking amongst clinicians, we're just redirecting attention away from somatic awareness to an area they think should be painful. And that's what it comes down to is attentional focus. And that's what we consistently see in the research with pain science is you're just redirecting their attention. And you know, we could talk about, well, we're also, you know, I think the easiest rationalization for exercise with chronic pain patients is it often is task specific. There's usually kinesiophobia and fear avoidance of movement with catastrophic thinking. So if I can get them to alter their belief that they can they think they can't do something without pain, and then we put them in a low threat environment and start teaching them they can, then I think that's the best argument we currently have of why you should exercise them.
0: Does something become chronic? Something is you have an acute injury. The, the, the pain perception is more consistent with the tissue damage as tissue damage heals that, that sensitization should subside that threat appraisal. But, you know, but then sometimes it doesn't. It's the smoke alarm that, that just keeps beeping. It just needs recalibrated, you know, and then we get that transition. Yeah. So then, you know, central sensitization is, is, is this, this cascade of, of, you know, Areas around the area being sensitized, uh, you know, the, the it's not consistent in the brain map. There's not that local, you know, perception to the area. Then it becomes the, the treatment then becomes, or maybe the, the treatment then becomes education. Our, our exercise selection is then just, you know, it's whatever. It's, it's, it's whatever is going to decrease their, their fear to a pattern that's, generally provocative i mean i guess i'm trying to differentiate how it's any different than than an acute scenario from an exercise standpoint well
1: acute selection should be based upon what if the area was damaged what does it need to be able to do what does the athlete need to be able to do with it and then how do you appropriately dose in movement and being cognizant of healing parameters right whereas Mm -hmm. chronic if we're the go ahead there
2: I was going to say, would you say it's more the acute side is how we work around the problem and the chronic is how we work at the problem?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's a great, great way to look at it is, is, you know, we got to hit this head on with chronic. Whereas with an athlete with an acute injury, we have to be like, well, you fucked that area up. Let's leave that alone for a little bit. Let's do all this other shit while it's healing. And then as we feel comfortable with it, we start dosing in movements to the area that was damaged.
0: But that specific exercise in an acute scenario is literally re-strengthening the the tissues that were damaged. Depending on the
1: severity of the injury, what was done, was it a surgical case, was there a lot of atrophy and deconditioning, were they braced and immobilized afterwards, like all of those parameters absolutely would take into account how you're dosing in your therapeutic exercise for that area.
0: You know, I guess my my point is with the chronic situation. I think that the common narrative is to say that the exercise program, you know, strengthening. We see, you know, there's there's some evidence to say that the uh, cardio uh, can help with pain in chronic patients. Um, strength training can help with pain in chronic patients. And then that's the that's the narrative. You're in pain because you're weak, or you're well, issue- you're in pain because you're out of shape. The issue with all of this
1: is driving an external locus of control, right? You're robbing the patient of the belief that they have internal locus of control over pain control. So the slippery slope of utilizing any modality, exercise or otherwise, with a chronic pain patient is you could instill the belief system that it's external to their ability to control it. And that's not the truth. <laughs>
2: Part of the reason, so if you look at some of the research, resistance training does seem to have slightly bigger effects out of it. And if I'm going to spitball on this, I would say part of that may have to do with some of establishing that internal locus of control. Because when you start resistance training someone, you see gains pretty fast, especially if you're an untrained individual. So you can start establishing, wow, we went from 10 pounds to 20 pounds. That's a 100% improvement. We've doubled your weight. So if that's the case, then, you know, there starts getting some of that positive reinforcement and they start looking at it as, hey, if I'm at 20, why not shoot for 40? I mean, think about how excited all of us get whenever we change that first number on any one of our lifts. It's like party time, or at least pizza and buffet time. And, you know, being able to show some of that gains to a patient and make it, make them see they're the ones doing it, I think is one of the big parts on it along the way. And so it's not...
0: It's not the act. It's not the, it's not the strength gain. It's not the top end force production. It's the act of getting stronger that has a, ch- yeah. that has a, that, that has a, an effect on their, on their beliefs, on their confidence, on their expectations. They're able to do more than they ever thought. Like you said, Derek, holy shit. I got, I gained, you know, I put 40 pounds on my, on my deadlift and I never thought I would lift more than 20 pounds in, in my life. That's what the doctor said. It's not the 40 pounds on the deadlift and making the tissues more resilient or like changing the fiber alignment to make them more stronger at the local level it was the process that helped to to, you know recalibrate
2: it also instills some confidence because yeah one of the other components of this is that whole challenge versus threat thing and the stronger you get you know you start getting a little bit of that you look at some things like if if your max deadlift is 100 pounds and you have to pick up something that weighs 70 pounds 10 times, you may be a little concerned about it. If your max deadlift is 600 pounds and you have to pick up something that weighs 70 pounds 10 times, you're like, ah, whatever. It is what it is. And I think on a daily basis, that outcome gets challenged more than what we see with some of our aerobic side of things. And, And I'm sure a case can be made that, you know, if you get the person who's walking 100 feet, you take them to 200 feet. You know there may be an aerobic challenge to that, but I would say, societally as a large or at large, um, you may be able to frame it a little bit better through the resistance side, and that may be why we see what we see. And now we're talking. And... Go, Mike. I was just going to
1: say to the point of um, how exercise is most likely mitigating the development of chronic pain. We have research on this, and there are studies out there that have looked at this and demonstrate that physical activity does tend to mitigate the development of chronic pain. I know there was one by uh, Noggle, I believe, and I'm blinking on the one other one. I was going to try to look it up. Um, but there are research, uh, there is research out there that looks at that, and like to, what Derek said is it probably has nothing to do with the exercise. It's that the person had the internal locus of control and self-efficacy to take care of themselves and went out and did the exercise.
2: But now that I'm thinking about it real quick... It may have a little bit to do with it because Mike, think about the Teixeira article that talks about skeletal muscle loading regeneration and actually showed that resisted, or skeletal muscle loading actually has a direct positive effect on your ability to feel. So, you know, yeah. it, it may contribute to it. Now, once again, like it's a percentages game and we suck at thinking in terms of probability and, you know, this could contribute 3% to it. But if you get 3% here, 6% here, it adds up instead of just trying to get 100% with one modality or one narrative or, you know, one whatever.
1: Well, the reason... There's actually... Go ahead, Mike. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's all good. There's actually... I just found the paper, oddly enough, and the title of it is How Does Physical Activity Modulate Pain? and It's by law. It was published in Pain Journal in uh, 2017, March of this year. So... That would be an article worth checking out on that
0: topic. Well, and there's there's the isometrics, you know, creating short-term uh, analgesia, analgesia and, and tendinopathies and these types of things. The, the reason I keep coming back to this, Derek, the example that you said, you know, if you have to lift, if your best deadlift is 90 pounds and you have to lift 120 times, well, it, well, now we're talking, you know, injury risk reduction. But, j- you know, just in the moment, the reason I keep coming back to exercise, the sp- specific exercise not necessarily relating is because I get the question all the time or like, I'm sure you guys do of just like, Oh, it hurts. Like they'll point to the side of their back. Oh, it hurts over here. Well, what do I do? What is this? You know, what do I do when it hurts over here? And then the next person will say, well, mine hurts, you know, right in the middle. What do I do then? You know? Cause it's like completely different because it's in a, a spot that's four centimeters over. Or like, Oh, it's a little higher. It's actually a little higher. And like, it's so weird because last month it was like low, you know, it was right on the SI joint, but now it's like high. So now, now what do I do? Uh,
2: stay yeah. calm, yeah. relax, <laughs> pick up some heavy shit, get plenty yeah. of sleep, drink water, get laid every now but and then. What is it? What is it? My Q- I have now
0: written my opus. Is it my QL or is it my SI, Derek? It doesn't
1: fucking matter. And it probably is neither.
2: Here's what I would say to you, Quinn you can take a dartboard and put your letters around all 26, throw two darts pick those two letters, you have just as high of a probability of guessing right. But
0: isn't this yeah. why doing modalities can even, especially in an in a, in a acute scenario, I'm going to needle your shoulder. You've been having shoulder pain for the last three years. Uh, you've got a trigger point there. I'm going to needle it. So now not only are you taking somebody whose pain has probably become part of them, you, some, one of you guys mentioned yeah. that earlier, like now it's their day to day. They know that, oh, I'm, if I'm going to go to the gym and, and do, you know, upper body training, I know my shoulder is going to hurt. That's just who I am. Now I've got a fucked up shoulder, you know, just part of my life. And now you're, you know, taking the control completely away from them and putting the onus on some type of, of intervention that's not even the, you know, the clinician and the intervention themselves are what's, you know, the hope is in those things. And so you're taking somebody who's already got beliefs. That are, that they feel like they don't have the power to control the situation and you're, you're taking that away from them even further. Uh, and so like in an, in an acute scenario with those things, you have, you know, you're potentially maybe setting them up for that, that road, but at least in that realm, you know, mother nature is probably going to take care of it regardless. So you just hope they don't get mind fucked by the modality and then they can just forget they got it. And like the, you know, mother nature will fix it. The clinician will probably put Say that it was the whatever it was, you know, because it's really good timing. Uh, you got, you healed yeah. right around the, so, but then in that, in that chronic scenario, it, it just seems like such a, such a detriment to the, to the patient to give them anything other than something that they could do on their own, regardless I, of what that is.
1: I'm still going to argue against modality usage for acute pain-based issues unless we have efficacious evidence demonstrating actual physiological adaptable effects. Now, we can travel down the very fucked-up rabbit hole of placebo-like effects and have that discussion. (laughs) But then again, usually I, I highly doubt the clinicians coming in the room and saying, this is going to be a placebo I'm going to give you. But if you believe in this placebo strong enough, you're probably going to feel better after we get done with this then that may be a little more ethical way of approaching it, but I highly doubt that's actually happening. And then, like you said, with chronic issues, you're just continuing to mind fuck them or perpetuate an unnecessary dependency. And we can see this. Like We talk about our modalities, but we could take this to the physician realm and talk about the opioid epidemic and how we've been trying to treat chronic pain with opioids for a very long time, and now we have this massive addiction issue with it. So we're all fucking this up. This isn't just one group of people.
2: Michael. So, okay. Good. Go no, no, yeah. Go no, yeah. No, no, no. Uh, uh. <laughs> well, I was going to say to circle back on what you said a moment ago, Quinn, about, um, making the patient see it as themselves. I think there is some utility in, in invoking the royal we, because once again, we go back to pain, and, and there is that social component to it. And, and part of that really is establishing that therapeutic alliance, but keeping that locus of control in them. I, I don't want my patients to feel like they're doing it on their own, I want them feeling like they could do it on their own and having the confidence in themselves. But if they don't feel like I'm offering some, like some contribution, then I'm not being effective either. But
0: ultimately, they're uh, not going to need you though, right? They're not going to see you. That's the goal. The goal is to put yourself out of business. They'll be back. Do you use the one out of 10? Do you use some type of scale? Do you ask them to rate their pain? (laughs) <laughs> and, and, it. And, and what does it depend on because i'm sure
2: what do you mean what does it depend on come on quinn um i try my best not to use it that often and if you look at the stance of moving away from pain as the fifth vital sign, uh, I think there is some good evidence that it doesn't really tell us much. And, you know, I think a good entry exam or essay question for PT school will be explain to me the difference between three out of 10 pain and four out of 10 pain. I would love to see what those papers will come in looking like. And, you know, it's weird that we, and Mike's has a role as asked, he's heard me say this so many times, we are so focused on asking about pain over and over and over and over again. If our job is to get you to take your mind off of pain, the last thing I probably want to repeatedly ask you about is your pain. You know, we've we've all been through that shitty breakup and all of our friends take us out. And it's not like while they're trying to cheer us up, they're like, man, what do you think your ex is doing right now? Do you think she loves that other guy? Do you think, what do you think she's doing? Is she at a movie right now? Because you're trying to get their mind off of it it's the exact same thing. Cause I mean, if you want to talk about what is a distressing experience, I would say that X walking out on you is pretty high up the ladder on that. Now, definitely. I mean, we call it heartbreak for a reason. So I mean, there's some pain associated with that, but in the same yeah. token, like we sit here the whole time and we're like, does it burn? Does it ache? Is it worse, better or the same now? Are you sure it's not worse? Did we make your pain any worse? And, and you know, what are we doing? when We're going through that entire dance.
1: And we, and we have research on this because I'm like chomping at the bit to toss this in there. But like Sullivan did a study, in six on this called the influence of communication goals and physical demands and different dimensions of pain behavior. They had people lift uh, various weighted objects off of a table and they asked them to uh, answer two different questions. One was, what is the weight of the object while they're lifting it? And the other is, what is your pain behaviors uh, report with this? How much pain are you having with this movement? And they found pretty easily that if you ask them about a painful uh, experience, movement that they're having to deal with, uh, it increases their uh, reporting of pain. But if you refocus their attention on, well, what is the weight of this object you're lifting, their pain scores went down. I mean, it really comes down to if we boil this all the way down, it's attentional focus. And that's where we have the development of expression of pain.
0: What I like to say is, you know, if if your knee hurts and I punch you in the face, then your jaw hurts call that major pain. <laughs> uh, so Mike, you don't use a, any type of pain scale. Do you quantify pain at all? Or do you, uh, do you unfortunately, like
1: I, I'm a slave in the insurance model. And so I have to ask those questions. If it's a chronic pain based issue, uh, I will probably ask at an initial console and you will not hear me ask it again.
2: Sometimes I I'll phrase it as on the wonderfully ambiguous zero to 10 scale. Where like zero being no pain, ten being oh my god, what's going on? Where are you? And it's trying to take some of the teeth out of the question. Would you also say that one
0: potential benefit was it actually it can actually clue you in on the psyche of the person if they are one of those people who rate their pain as a nine out of ten and they're sitting there chewing gum? Even if you don't ask them ever again, you say, Okay, I know what I'm dealing with here. I would be careful because the thought process is
1: you believe them no matter what. So if someone looks me dead in the eye and isn't showing any emotional, physical or distress at all, and they say they're a 10 out of 10, my response is going to be the same, whether they say they're a 2 out of 10. You know, I hear you. Let's see what
0: we can do about this. Oh, yeah. But I'm not going to question any differently. No, no, no. You don't. don't you're not questioning them. But just in the back of, of your mind, you know, I'm I'm making assumptions here. But Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say nine out of ten. You know, maybe more fearful, but but maybe not.
2: You know, who knows? But well, that's why we have things like the start back tool to where we can start doing some assessments to where, you know, Tampa Scale of kinesiophobia is good, Pain Catastrophizing Scale is good. But you know, if I'm once again, if I don't want to talk to you about your pain, giving you a big scale that has pain and catastrophizing on the top of it may not be our best way to start. But, you know, Start Back Tool is starting to show some good reliability and validity in picking out those patients that are are a little bit more predisposed to being medium and high risk. And the ones, instead of looking at from zero to 10, it's like if you're at medium risk, we probably need to spend a little more time discussing some of your thoughts on the situation. Are you keeping that with your patients with
0: back pain? Am I keeping it? Are you, do you have anything else that you use for other? cases um
2: no I, it's, I i think that's good for the low back side of it and once again to circle back to where we started i think getting efficient at that subjective dialogue ends up giving you a lot of conversation or a lot of the components of it and then learning to let your patient talk and I, I don't think that can be overstated enough a lot of times we're so hell-bent on telling them what's wrong with them that we fail to see what's right
0: Mic drop, man. Did we miss anything? I'm I'm just going through my some of the questions that I had mentioned earlier that I like to have people answer before. Um, how long has the issue been going on? Anything like this in the past? Yeah, I just had. If you've had other healthcare in the past, you know what was the treatment and recommendations? Did those things help? What are your thoughts as to why they did or why they didn't? Um, and then sometimes it'll be like, you know, they'll list off a bunch of modalities and say, well, you know, I just stopped going, you know, I I stopped my insurance ran out, and I, so I I stopped getting that treatment and that's why my pain came back. Um, and again, you know, and then uh, uh, for me, because right now at this period of time, I don't practice using, um, many of the modalities out there that when they, when they say that that's kind of like their expectation going in. Um usually have a conversation with them about that right away so that they're not caught off guard or, you know, neither one of us are kind of caught off guard if they're expecting something that I'm not going to give them, you know, we can have that conversation up front. Um, that's kind of an aside. I, I think a, a good question to always ask them uh, is
1: what do you think about your pain or what are your thoughts about the pain that you're experiencing? um i'm totally blanking on the study i read a while back but actually they did a phone interview and polled people about their chronic low back pain and their thoughts on it and all of the previous narratives that were given by clinicians or tv shows or advertisements or whatever came out through those phone interviews and people were saying things like i'm fearful of my low back pain because i think my back's unstable and i'm just going to one day pick something up and i'm going to have a fracture or my disc is going to blow out of my back or I'm going to not be able to do something. Every fear imaginable that was associated with their low back pain really showed through. So asking them, what do you think about this pain really gives you, it kind of sets you up, you know, to almost knock it out of the park with a home run to, to reeducate them.
2: And so I think one of the best things I've heard on the subject that I'm going to attribute to Roger Henderson because I I think he's the first person I saw say it, you know, as clinicians, a lot of times we talk about tools in our tool belt and, you know, we want to be Batman out saving the world, but our focus shouldn't be on us being Batman. We should be focused on trying to be Alfred. We, we want to be the one who's just there to see the situation through and make sure they're not doing anything stupid or, you know, giving them the confidence when they're down. So we shouldn't be thinking of ourselves as the superhero. We're the ones that it should be making our patients the superhero and, and really trying to facilitate that independence and efficacy out of them. Yep. Just
0: guiding the path. What else you guys got? Pain's fucking complicated. That's about all I've got.
1: Are you? Do you treat pain? I treat people who may be experiencing pain.
2: Oh, that was beautiful. God, can we get that crocheted on the pillow? <laughs> I already have it. <laughs> um,
0: okay. Well, that was episode four of the Clinical Athlete Podcast. Uh, that was a really good topic. I, you know, probably. We'll come back to that again probably every single episode. It's in, in some capacity, pain will be a topic, uh, but hopefully that was that was a good start, and we'll probably get a lot of more questions about that than we were ever able to give answers to, which is the way it should be. Um, head over to clinicalathlete.com and check out those events. If you want to learn more about subjects that nobody knows anything about, you'll go to the Scientific Principles of Sports Rehab uh, Seminar, and if you want to learn how to snatch and clean and jerk, where we try to ignore all those complicated things and just lift weights. And if you get hurt, well, you signed a waiver, a uh, clinical athlete weightlifting certification. <laughs> and is that it? That's it. All right. See you next time.